If you have your Bibles open, would you turn now with me to the book of Ezekiel, and we'll be turning to the 43rd chapter of this book. As you're turning, let me express my gratitude to Pastor Ben and the elders for the opportunity to bring the word this morning to us. Ezekiel chapter 43 is the text for this morning, and we will read the first 12 verses. And I hope you will see the parallel between what's occurring here and what was just read in 1 Kings chapter 8. Ezekiel 43, verse 1 says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold... The glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They've defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever." As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, and its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well as all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on top of the mountain, all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. What is God's address? What is God's address? How does that question strike you? Perhaps it gives you the theological shivers. You would affirm, like the rest of the scriptures, that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is not confined to a single location. You would affirm with Psalm 139, 7 through 10, where may I go from your spirit? Where may I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to Sheol, even you are there. You would affirm with Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 27, That heaven and earth cannot contain the Lord. And yet, in that same chapter in verse 29, he says, You have said that your name will dwell in the temple. 
So I ask you again, what is God's address? How do you think one of Ezekiel's recipients would have answered that question? If you were to ask them, what is God's address, what would they have said? Well, probably and presumably they should have said that God is omnipresent, but he is manifesting himself, his glory in the temple. But for Ezekiel's recipients, his audience, that is a significant problem. It's actually a catastrophic problem because Ezekiel is writing to a people of God, the nation Israel, in exile. They are far away from the land. They are far away from the temple. In fact, God's temple has been destroyed by his own decree as an act of judgment upon the nation in response to their sin. The thought of God dwelling in the temple is not an encouraging thought for the people of God at this point in redemption history because they are far, far from God's presence. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you know this thought experientially. When you sin, what is the experience that you feel, for lack of a better word? It seems to you when you sin that God is 10,000 miles away from you. You have no desire for communion with him in his word. You have no desire for prayer to even speak to him as a result of your sin. And it seems as if God has left you because of the things that you have done. And so much so, if you continue to persist in your sin, now doubts begin to creep into your mind and you wonder, will I be in God's presence, not just now, but at the last day? Will I be found to be with him? You see, the problem that Ezekiel's audience was faced with is not just exclusive to them. It is one that we face in response to our own sinfulness. Has God left me in response to my wickedness? And so this morning, I would like to examine that question from this text, Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 12. And we'll see that question answered in three simple movements. And the first one shows up here in just the first five verses. And that is this thought that glory returns. Glory returns. Look with me at verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Skip down to verse 4. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Ezekiel is writing to a people who are far away from God's presence, who are suffering the consequences of their sin. And he says to them, there is a temple and God's glory is coming to dwell with you again. He resounds a dramatic note of encouragement to the people of God that once again, God's glory will dwell with them. That raises this question, what is God's glory? When you think about God's glory in the scriptures, what comes to your mind? Well, perhaps, and rightfully so, a lot, many, numerous physical circumstances accompany the coming of God's glory. Earthquakes, lightning, flashes of thunder, smoke, fire. If you think back to what was occurring on Mount Sinai when God's glory descended onto the mountain, what were the physical manifestations that accompanied it? 
They were dramatic. They were weighty. They were heavy. And that is exactly what you see taking place in this passage. Look with me at verse 2. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and you see physical things taking place. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, the whole earth shining with his glory. You see visible manifestations of the presence of God when the glory of God enters the temple. This is a weighty thought that God's glory would dwell amongst his people. And as we think about this thought, the thought of God's glory dwelling with man, this is not an insignificant theme in the entirety of the scriptures. If you think back to the beginning of your Bibles, how does it begin? Well, it begins in a garden with God dwelling amongst his people, Adam and Eve. But yet because of their sin, they are removed from the presence of God as a consequence. Fast forward through redemption history, what do you have? You have God redeeming his people from slavery so that he would dwell among them. He says that he will be their God and they will be his people and he will make his dwelling among them. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12. Fast forward to 1 Kings, you have a temple constructed whereby God's glory comes to dwell amongst his people. But now, at this point, when Ezekiel writes his prophecy, God's glory is not dwelling with man. They are suffering the consequences of their sin. It seems as if God has abandoned his people. This theme really runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. But it is also a theme that Ezekiel is drawing attention to. You see, if you try to understand the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel really at its heart is a theology or a study or an analysis of God's presence with his people. Ezekiel chapter one, he sees the glory of God and the resulting consequence, which must thereby occur for the nation of Israel, is that the spirit of God enters into Ezekiel. Thereby, after his prophecies of judgment, it's no surprise when we arrive in chapter 36 and chapter 37 and we hear promises of restoration in which the spirit of God enters his people and dwells among them. The theology of God's presence is this theme that runs throughout Ezekiel. So much to the point where the very last verse of the book makes this very clear. Just glance with me at Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. In describing the city where this temple is located, notice the details. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. Ezekiel 48, verse 35, the closing of the book and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Do you see this morning this point that Ezekiel is making? To a nation who is suffering the consequences of their sin, who is far away from the presence of God, he says to them, I see a temple, and God's glory is entering that temple such that he will dwell with them. The Lord is with his people. This is the hope, this is the encouragement that he drives at. But there is something else that we need to examine in this entrance, and that is its manner. Consider with me the manner of how God enters the temple. Look with me at verse 1. You'll see some repetition. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. 
Verse four, as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. Three times you have this direction mentioned. God's glory is entering his temple from an east to west movement. What is the significance of that direction in terms of the scriptures? And it would, it's important to know that this is an intentional emphasis. He doesn't have to mention three times. In fact, he's already mentioned in chapter 42, verse 15, that he's at the eastern gate. The audience already knows this, but three times he draws attention to this direction. What is the purpose? Why would he do such a thing? Well, to answer that question, we must examine a parallel that Ezekiel is making. Look with me at verse 3, and this parallel is observed. It says, The vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. You see, in noting the eastward movement of God, Ezekiel is drawing attention to a vision that he has already seen. And to understand the purpose of this eastward movement, we must examine that vision. So turn with me now in your Bibles to chapter 8 of Ezekiel. Chapter 8 of Ezekiel. We're trying to discern the manner in which God's glory comes to dwell amongst his people. And it says, the glory of God enters from an eastward direction. You're in chapter 8. In this first vision, that, or this second vision that Ezekiel has, you'll notice things about it that are important in terms of East language. If you look with me at verse 5 and 6. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. Different direction mentioned. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will still, you will still see greater abominations. Ezekiel comes and sees this vision, and at the northern gate, there is idolatry taking place. In the house of God, abominations occurring. But he says here, you will see greater abominations. Well, Ezekiel, what are those greater abominations? He recounts them in verse 7, then again in verse 14, and finally here in verse 16, he says, and he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces, notice the direction, toward the east. Worshiping the sun, repetition again, toward the east. Again, here now in this vision, east direction is being brought into view. Again, the question we raise, what is the significance of this? What is this preoccupation in Ezekiel's mind with the east? Well, all we have to do is understand just one little detail about the presence of God through the scriptures. If you think back to the book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, do you remember which side of the garden the cherubim were placed? They were placed at the east side of the garden. Genesis makes this very clear in chapter 3, verse 24. Do you remember which direction the tabernacle was facing? The tabernacle was facing the east. We see this in Exodus chapter 38, verse 13. And the same is true of the temple. The point being, the east facing temple is declaring very clearly the entrance to God's 
presence. Such that this abomination, the greatest abomination that occurs in the temple is this. In the inner court, in the room most close to God's glory, God's people are looking away from him. They have drawn very proximate to his presence. And in his presence, they have turned his, their backs on him. They are looking to the east. They are looking away from his glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is this not the same thing that happens when we sin? God has sent his spirit to indwell us. And in his presence, we turn our backs on him and look away to something else. Because we think that will bring us satisfaction. This is exactly the abomination that removed God's presence from his people. That may sound like it's very discouraging. But there is a note of encouragement here that Ezekiel is trying to point out by making comparison to this vision. And that is a point of contrast. And let's examine this. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 4. In response to this abomination, what will take place? Well, look with me at chapter 10, verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. This is the first of three stages in God's exit, his glory departing from the temple. The second stage occurs in in verse 18 of the same chapter. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 18. It says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood of the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The glory of God departs from its innermost place to the eastern gate. And now from the eastern gate, it will depart, verse 22 of chapter 11, it will depart to the Mount of Olives, the mountain on the east side of the city. God's exit occurs in three stages. It's almost as if Ezekiel is taking pains to show us something about God's departure, in that God is reluctant to leave his people. At three stages, this Exit is pronounced, and there is content in between that delays its exit. But when you read of the return of God's glory in Ezekiel chapter 43, what do you see? In just five verses, God's glory rushes in from the east and dwells among his people. What does that teach us about the glory of God desiring to be with his people? It teaches the exact thing that Moses experiences on the Mount Sinai. When God reveals his glory, Ezekiel is Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. God does not desire to depart his people. He desires to dwell with them. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he desires to dwell with you. That raises this question. If I sin, is God's presence removed from me? If I do wrong, does God's glory depart from my life? And that is exactly the question that Ezekiel's audience would have had. Yes, it's encouraging. God's glory is coming back to the temple. But if we sin again, will God's glory depart again? Well, look with me at this next component of God's glory. 
And that is found in verse 6. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Notice this phrase. Where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me. And notice again the repetition. And I will dwell in their midst forever. We see not just that God's glory returns, but now we see that God's glory remains. God's glory returns to his people, and now we see that God's glory will remain permanently with his people. This is such a note of encouragement. We see in verse 6 that Ezekiel hears a voice coming from the temple. Notice the content of what that voice says. Verse 7. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Pause there for a moment. If you've been reading Ezekiel, this should be shocking language. Ezekiel has had two visions in which he sees the throne of God. The throne of God that is only mentioned four times in the book of Ezekiel. One of them here, the other three times, that throne is above a chariot. A chariot that is particularly mobile, that can move in any direction it desires. But now that throne is no longer above a chariot. Now that throne is in the temple. God is dwelling with man. His rule is issuing forth from this temple. And it is this rule that you experience when you behold the glory of God. Of God. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that each and every one of us must have this experience that Ezekiel had? If you have not seen the glory of God, you have not already been transformed. This glory begins to be transformative. This is what Paul is referencing in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who are unbelievers to prevent them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you see the glory of God is most visibly displayed for us right now in the face of Jesus Christ. And there are people, many people in this world, some even in this room, who have not seen that glory. Because their eyes are blinded to see, from seeing the glory of Christ by their sin and by the devil. And unless the Spirit of God removes the blindfold from their eyes, they will not see his glory. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. There are many in here, you have beheld this glory. You have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And your response has been the exact same as Ezekiel's verse 4. Verse, end of verse 3. You have fallen on your face because the weight of this glory has crushed you in the weight of your own sin. And in response, you have repented and put your faith in him. Unless that experience done by the spirit of God occurs in your life, 
you will not see this glory. This is the implications of the throne being in the temple. But notice this language again, verse 7, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. How is it possible that God's glory could dwell amongst his people forever? They're sinful. How is that possible? Well, notice the direct consequences of God's glory dwelling amongst his people. Verse 7, the house of Israel shall no more defile my name, neither they nor their kings. And now all the defilements that they had done, whereby God's glory had left the temple, are listed. You see them here listed, verse 7, whoring, referring primarily not to physical immorality, but to spiritual adultery. They had placed idols in the presence of God. They had abandoned the covenant relationship they had with God. A second offense, they had placed the dead bodies of their kings at their high places in the presence of God. They had brought death into the presence of God, whereby life must be. A third offense, they had violated God's regimen for building. They had put up thresholds near his threshold, doorposts near his doorposts. All of these offenses, all of these defilements are put aside. All of them are gone as a result of God's glory dwelling amongst his people. Do you see the encouragement in this for you, brother and sister in Christ? That when you enter into this glory, when you behold this glory, there is a result. You will not defile God's name anymore. All of your sin will be put away. All of it will be put aside by the blood of Jesus Christ because you are beholding something that is totally and utterly transformative and that is the glory of God. When you see the glory of God, it is completely transformative. It already has transformed your life and now at this point in redemptive history, when you see the glory of God dwelling amongst his people in the temple, your life will be completely transformed whereby you will no longer sin again. That is such an encouragement to us in our own walk with the Lord. At this point, it would be appropriate to deal with a rather thorny interpretive difficulty. And that is the nature of this temple. You see, there are many, many good commentators and godly Christians who don't believe that this is speaking of a physical, actual temple. And there are many reasons for doing so. One of which is in the New Testament, oftentimes this language, the language of a temple, is applied to Christians. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are the temple of God. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. It also says that Jesus is the temple. Jesus says, I will destroy this temple. And John says it was referring to his own body. We read also that the church is the temple. So there are Christians who read language such as this and say Ezekiel was referring to those realities. And there are appropriate reasons to think that way, but there are other difficulties. And we don't have time to examine all of them, but the chief difficulty is the difficulty that this passage poses. That when God's glory dwells in the temple, the result is no more sin. The result is that his people will not sin anymore. If that has already taken place, you would have every reason to doubt if you had actually seen God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ because you know experientially that you still sin. You wake up each day and you have a struggle against your flesh, a struggle which 
sometimes results in you doing things that violate God's glory. Specific sins. And so for that reason and others, it seems that this is referring to a literal physical temple that will come one day in the future. But what about now? Where is the encouragement there for us? If we struggle with this thought about God's presence so much, and it is difficult for us, what is the encouragement there for thinking so far ahead in the future? How, how does this thought, something that's coming in the distant future, a promise when we see God's glory, finally we will be utterly transformed, we will not sin anymore, how does that apply to my life right now? You see, I'm not next to the temple. God's glory has not dwelt the temple right now. So where is the hope for me? Well, it occurs really in two measures, one of which is thinking about, again, this New Testament thought of glory, of seeing God's glory. How does a person see God's glory and become transformed right now? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 makes that really clear. You behold God's glory day after day after day after you open his word and you behold the person of Jesus Christ revealed through the pages of scriptures, you see the glory of God. And that process is one where you are transformed moment by moment by moment until the day that you die when you step into the presence of God and now you behold the glory of Jesus Christ and you are finally and fully and utterly transformed and you will never sin again. That is how God has ordained that you would pursue this process of beholding the glory of God. You see, God's glory returns. God's glory remains. Jesus promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. So God has not departed you even though you have sinned. But what is the primary application for us now? Why would Ezekiel tell the people these things? Well, look with me at verse 10. This is exactly where the passage goes. We see that God's glory returns. We see that God's glory remains. But now we see that God's glory instructs. Look with me at verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple. Children of God, is there any application for this future reality? Something that is Long in the future for these people who are in exile, far away from God's presence. Is there any application for me right now? And God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, describe to the house of Israel the temple. In other words, by thinking about this temple, there is some present application for them currently. Does this not cut against the grain of our assessment of the future? We live our lives in light of the immediate future, but not in light of the ultimate future. We live our life thinking, what am I going to do after I graduate? What job will I pursue? What career will I have? What college will I send my children to? What state will I move to? What job do I want my children to have? What am I going to do with my life after my aging parents have passed on? We live our life in terms of those immediate questions in the immediate future. And those are important questions to think about. But ladies and gentlemen, let me give you this thought. The thought that God desires for you to wake up every morning and live your life by is the thought of the ultimate future. That one day you will step into the glory of God and you will behold his glory and you will be transformed and you will live according to his purposes. That thought is the thought that God desires for you to live your life by. 
And so God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, describe to the house of Israel, the temple. And notice the consequences. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And they shall measure the plan. In thinking about the future coming glory of God to dwell amongst his people, the resulting consequence is shame over their own sins. In thinking about the glory of God that will come in the future, they are to think and to ponder and consider what that means and then be ashamed of their deeds. How is it that the description of the temple would lead to shame over wrongdoing? Well, he answers this. And if we've been reading Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43, there are several things that we could note that make it clear why this description is so powerful. One of which is, first, even in thinking about the temple, they are forced by consequence to think of their sin that has removed God's presence from his temple. They're forced to think back to their deeds and think, we need a new temple Because we aren't currently in one. We don't currently have one in our presence, so to speak. They're to think of their past wrongs. But furthermore, they're to think of its design. And there are a couple things we should note about its design. First, it is perfectly symmetrical. This design is reflective of the one who dwells it. There are no errors. It is perfectly calculated. Every aspect of it is designed intentionally. And it is fitting that that would manifest the glory, the presence of God. Because God is a perfect being. There is nothing wrong with him. Furthermore, the inside of this temple looks conspicuously like a garden. If you read earlier chapters, particularly chapter 41, you'll see two main features on the inside of this temple. Those features are cherubim, and palm trees. If you were to walk inside the temple, what would you see? Well, you would see something that resembled the Garden of Eden. You have cherubim who are guarding the entrance to the presence of the Garden of Eden, and palm trees. This would look a lot like a garden. So much so that when God's people would enter the temple, they would see and behold and realize that God's glory is dwelling amongst his people. But there is one further point we should note whereby God's people would be ashamed of their sin. And that is its location. The location of this temple is important. Look with me at verse 12. Read verse 12 and answer this question, where is the temple found? Look at verse 12. Where is the temple found? This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. The temple is found on a mountain. And this has already been mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 40. At the beginning of this vision, Ezekiel 40, verse 2, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. Why would the temple be constructed on a very high mountain? What does that tell us about the one who indwells it? Well, the language of the mountain of God is significant again throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And I want to take us on a trajectory that occurs in the book of Psalms. So if you will turn with me now to Psalm, the book of Psalms, and I should say Psalm 
2. And we'll just blitz through several passages in the Psalter to understand what is it about this mountain that we are to think of when we think of God's temple. Psalm 2, we don't have time to examine the context. We're just going to examine quick references. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That word hill is the same word mountain. Look at Psalm 3, verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his, what's the attribute that describes this mountain? Holy. He answered me from his holy mountain, his holy hill. Look with me at Psalm 43. Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me. And notice this language, to your holy hill, your holy mountain. And now look at what it says, to your dwelling. Or again, forward in Psalm 99, the ninth verse. Exalt, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. It's no surprise when we, occur, when we arrive in Ezekiel 43 and Ezekiel has this prophecy that he says about the mountain in which God's temple is built. Verse 12, Ezekiel 43, verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain, all around. Notice the attribute. It's the same one. Most holy. The instruction of the temple. The application, the immediate one that is for the people of God is this. To dwell in God's presence is one that requires holiness, total holiness, most holiness, holiness of holinesses. To be in the presence of God requires complete holiness. How does that answer our question about the applications of this future glory? To be in God's presence later to be in the spirit of God right now, what is required? The same concept, total, complete holiness for your life. To dwell among the presence of God, to be with him in his glory requires complete holiness. If you are in here this morning and you are flirting with sin, if you are flirting with sensuality and images that you should not tolerate in your mind, if you are flirting with wrong thoughts about other people in this room, if you are flirting with criticisms of people in authority, spiritual authority whom God has put in your life, if you are flirting with a callousness around this book, the word of God, if you are flirting with any sin, let me remind you that you are not dwelling with the spirit of God. That you are not walking by the Spirit of God. And if you persist in that, you have every reason to question if you will be in God's presence on the last day. You see, to be in God's presence is one that is totally holy because of His being. God demands our holiness. This is the instruction of the temple. And so to bring that to a New Testament application, let me ask you in closing, to turn with me to 2 Corinthians.
2 Corinthians chapter 6. And in this passage, we'll see language that makes reference to future realities that Ezekiel was describing. Chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the language that Ezekiel is referencing, God dwelling amongst his people. Yet we have not experienced the thing that Ezekiel is looking forward to, the day where all of our sin is put away. So what is the immediate application for us as the temple of God at this stage in redemptive history? Verse 17, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, the promises that God desires to dwell with you, what is the application for your life? Chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The application that God has for you this morning is to cleanse your life from defilements. And let me remind you that that cleansing comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to partake in communion. A reminder of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf for our sins so that we would walk in the spirit, so that we would live in accordance with God dwelling in us. And so we would bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Consider this thought this morning that God desires to dwell with his people. May that motivate you to greater holiness. Let's bow for prayer.